in accounting, the Where Accountants Go podcast. Life in Accounting is the podcast for everyday heroes like you working in the accounting profession. Are you ready to hear from accounting influencers, thought leaders, visionaries, and other professionals leading change in the accounting world? Then stay tuned for Mark Goldman, a CPA, the owner of Where Accountants Go, and your host. Welcome to Life in Accounting. Kind of figured out the best way to, you know, rotate airplanes in and out of Sardinia, you know, down in the Mediterranean. And because one of our missions was to serve as an aggressor squadron for American pilots. Hello, everyone. I'm Mark Goldman, a CPA and your host for Life in Accounting, a podcast production of whereaccountantsgo.com. That clip was from Bill Heath, currently in Fredericksburg, a beautiful hill country town in central Texas. And I say currently because as you're going to hear, Bill's career has taken him all over the world. We're going to cover several states and even a few countries in this podcast. Bill's going to cover the details in the interview, but his career starts with the military, moves into professional associations, then the educational space, and now the tourist industry. It's really an amazing story. And if you're interested in management and leadership roles, Bill has some really valuable insight to share with us. His career has involved people management practically from the start. If you do find this episode has been valuable to you, please visit us online at whereaccountantsgo.com to subscribe to the podcast, or you can do so on your favorite podcast app as well, of course. Also, we have links to all the prevalent certifications in the accounting world as well. That site is www.whereaccountantsgo.com. With that, let's go ahead and get started. Here's Bill Heath in Fredericksburg, Texas. Well, hello, Bill. Welcome to the podcast. Well, good morning, Mark. Thank you so much for having me today. I really look forward to being able to talk with you. Wonderful. Well, for our audience, we have Bill Heath joining us today. I like to mix up the program and have some guests with careers along more traditional paths that we typically think of, you know, financial accounting, audit, tax, those kinds of things. But I also like to make sure that we highlight those guests like Bill that have had very enlightening and successful careers taking what some may consider to be different paths than the typical expectations. In this interview, we're going to talk about governmental accounting, we're going to touch on nonprofits, and really overall, a lot of managerial and leadership roles, people leadership roles. So Bill, I'm really looking forward to this. I definitely want to start at the beginning though, so we get a complete picture. What led you to accounting as a possible career in the first place? Well, it's interesting. I didn't start out with the idea of having accounting as a career per se. I had always planned on going into the Air Force, and as I, when I entered college and decided which of the schools within the, you know, the university I wanted to enroll in and what I might choose as a major, I thought, well, what makes real good sense in terms of, you know, practical type of interest areas? And so I majored in accounting because it was a good and solid major. It have a lot of applications just in terms of, you know, how I might think about things, how I might look at things and all of that. And so, but my idea really was to go in the Air Force. I was going to fly airplanes. That's really where my focus was. I started pilot training in that process and the post-Vietnam war drawdown kind of caused me to have to move to a different functional area within the Air Force. And because the number of pilots that were needed had shrunk 
shrunk considerably at that point. So I actually landed, oddly enough, I was my first tentative assignment, or first assignment in a different area was going to be as an auditor down in San Antonio, Lackland Air Force Base. Well, that changed pretty quickly in the Air Force. Before I even arrived there, they sent me to Phoenix, Arizona, to Luke Air Force Base and into the, what in the Air Force was called the budget career field at that point, or, you know, basically just manage the program and the budget on an Air Force installation and just kind of take it work from there. It was a different start. Accounting, I was very glad that I did major in accounting. It certainly gave me a good foothold into that next phase, but that was it. Okay. How long were you active duty? 20 years. Oh, wow. Okay. So I'm very ignorant about the processes for that. Did you officially retire after I did. 20 years? Or? I okay. did, yes, I sure did. Okay. What was your next step after? Well, after so I, I went, you know, it's interesting. So I went into the Air Force at Luke Air Force Base, you know, in the budget career field at that point in time. And Luke was a very, very large base, basically a tactical fighter training base. And we did a lot of variety of things there in terms of not only training American pilots and the airplanes that we had there that the Americans flew, which would, at the time was an F-4 and an F-15. And, but we also had German pilots there. We trained the German Air Force in F-104s, an interceptor type plane that the Germans were flying. So we had quite a big busy and very active place at Luke Air Force Base. For me, it was personally very interesting because my father had gone through Luke back in the early 50s, and there I was, you know, a couple of years later doing the same thing. I went from Luke Air Force Base in Arizona overseas to England, a place called RAF Alconbury, which was in the east part of England, and then stayed there for three years and pretty much doing the same thing. But while I was there, I also got involved in base-wide type activities. The commander of that wing at the time drew me up to kind of work with him directly and kind of act as an interface between him and the 5,000 people we had in the wing to help him line up his priorities and communicate and, and receive information and synthesize things. And so it was a very opportune environment for me. It really exposed me to a whole lot. I moved from that at the same base back to do some management consulting, if you will, on the same base where we just looked for better ways to do things we were doing, including at the time we had, and, and you'll notice this is a lot of typical, the focus is not on what you would think normally in terms of the things you'd be doing in a business environment. For example, ours was obviously distinctly uh, military-oriented, and I would do things like you know, kind of figured out the best way to, you know, rotate airplanes in and out of Sardinia, you know, down in the Mediterranean, you know, and because one of our missions was we served as an aggressor squadron for American pilots to train against, or even NATO pilots, really, but not just Americans. So we would simulate as Russian airplanes and go out and fly against NATO pilots and win some, lose some. Yeah, it's, it's different, yeah. And then I, I got a little tour in Saudi Arabia at, at the time, too. With This was in the early 80s. It wasn't too long after the Iranian Revolution, and the Saudis were particularly anxious that they would not be attacked by the Iranians. And so I was down there in Riyadh, and I was attached to an airborne warning and control squadron there. And so we just kind of kept an eye on the Arabian Gulf of Arabia there. Depending on which side you're looking at, if you're looking at it from Saudi Arabia, it was the Gulf of, you know, the Arabian Gulf. If you looked on the other side, it was the Persian Gulf. So but all of these things really used a lot of the skills and the knowledge and everything that anybody who goes through as an accounting major is going to use. And because I think that it really it's so useful across such a broad spectrum of professional activity that it's, it's pretty universal. I went from England over to back to the States at Offutt Air Force Base in Omaha, Nebraska, which at the time was the headquarters of the Strategic Air Command. And I became the comptroller, which really in, in Air Force terms that way, it was pretty much like the CFO of that 
of that organization. And our responsibility there was communications and air traffic control. And communications consisted every, from everything from, you know, the telephones on the installation to the emergency radios that were used to, you know, communicate with airplanes and, and installations worldwide. We had 27 bases across the world, and uh, there were just quite a whole lot going on. This was 1983 to 85 type era. And at the same time, what was happening in private sector, the data world the digital world was really coming on very, very strong, and the Air Force decided to merge communications and data automation functions into a broader organization called Information Systems. So we combined with what was the Strategic Air Command's Information System Group people at that time, and they were the ones running all the different major computers that supported the Air Force's early, the nation's integrated operating plan for wartime, and particularly with focus on the nuclear forces. The Soviet you know, Union was still very much intact at that point. The Cold War was still going on, and we just worked a variety of programs in order to keep the pressure on that. Ultimately, it was certainly successful. I went to Randolph Air Force Base after that down in San Antonio and kind of did the same thing, only the difference there was they did not have an organization like that there, so we constituted one, and that was a very exciting time. And it really relied upon, you know, a person's sense of organizational structure, organizational behavior, you know, financial structures, how to best count for things. It was a very much of a very complex environment and all the skills. And a person with an accounting background, for example, would really be able to apply themselves toward. I went from there to Washington, D.C. to the Pentagon, where I was assigned to Air Force operations over there and worked closely with a lot of other services, the Department of Defense and Congress. While I was there, Desert Storm happened, as it were. I then went out to the Pacific, to Guam and Singapore, Japan and Korea for a little bit. And I left the Pentagon in 1992. I went to Kirtland Air Force Base in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and I became a squadron commander there and worked at that installation for about three years, more or less on the operational side of the Air Force. It was our one of the two big heavy missions that we had there was nuclear weapons storage and special operations training there. And so all very different again, but all there's just so much commonality to all things. And that's what I did there. Went from there to still at the same base, but we had at Kirtland Air Force Base there in Albuquerque, we had what used to be the Air Force's weapons laboratory there, but now it really became kind of a space lab and worked on a variety of different programs from a financial and budgetary standpoint, things like directed energy programs, you know, laser beams and those kinds of things, rocket propulsion, space vehicle structures, you know, even such far-fetched stuff as uh, trying to figure out what asteroids were heading toward Earth and what could we do about it. So it was a very interesting, very, very different career in the Air Force and certainly was exposed to a lot of different things, had a lot of interesting challenges. And it's something that I think, you know, people don't often think about in terms of what they might do coming out of college. Just to clarify, you went to college, you got your degree early on in your career in the Air Force, right? Or was it I got it before I was in the Air Force, yes. Mm-hmm. Before you? Oh, okay. So you were, I'm sorry, I just wanted to clarify because... So technically, you were sort of classified as an accountant while you're doing all these things. That is interesting. Yeah. I, in fact, I went into the Air Force on a scholarship. I had an ROTC scholarship. I attended the University of Arizona, and I graduated in 1977. I left the Air Force in 1997. Okay. You were the first guest to mention laser beams. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's really Buck Rogers stuff. It's, it's amazing. <laughs> I didn't mean to cut you off. I'm sorry. I think you were telling us about your next step. I just oh, thank you. Yeah, no, not a problem. It's fun. 
What happened, you know, and my background, you know, Mark, I went to four different high schools when I was in high school. And so here I was in Albuquerque, New Mexico. I had two teenage children at the time, or one approaching teenagers, one was. And the Air Force wanted to send me over to the Pacific. At first, they wanted to send me to Korea. And it was a great job, squadron commander type job. And I would have loved doing it, but I would have had to take my kids overseas. It was what we called an accompanied assignment. And the children would have come, and so would my wife. We would have been over there for two years. And I... I circled back and talked to the guy in the Air Force assignments process who said I could stay over at the lab over there for two years, and it wasn't quite two years. And so they finally agreed, so I stayed at the lab. But the minute that two-year point hit, I got tagged with another assignment. This time it was to the Japanese island of Okinawa to Kadena Air Base. Again, it would have been a three-year assignment, great job. I would have loved to have done it. It was certainly in line with great career progression, but I didn't want to have my kids lose that high school experience in the States and you know, have that same kind of limiting factor that I had as a child. And then, so I got out of the Air Force. I made a decision to leave. And oddly enough, of course, you know, part of that point, even while I was in the Air Force, I was very involved with the local community, with the local, with the Albuquerque Society of CPAs and Albuquerque chapter of the, you know, state society. And I became president of that. And, and I was involved in just a wide variety of things. So I became well known. And while I was in the Air Force still, for example, I was the uh, president of the board of advisors for the New Mexico Cancer Research and Treatment Center there in, in Albuquerque. And so being involved with the community, and when I decided to get out, that's kind of one thing led to another, and I was asked to become the director of the New Mexico Public Accountancy Board, which I did for a few years. That was very interesting. Now we're talking about something that was definitely a lot more, you know, in more of a mainstream of understanding with people with an accounting background. While I was there, and this is all the time that, you know, nationwide, they were trying to seek some sort of uniform accountancy act so that people could have a better ease of reciprocity among different jurisdictions. And there were 52 jurisdictions in the state, you know, got all 50 states plus D.C. and Puerto Rico. So there were a wide variety. So I became, in that process, I was able to not only work with those people, but I also had the opportunity opportunity to pretty much be the point guy to rewrite New Mexico's Public Accountancy Act, which I did. And that also gave me some interesting state-level legislative experience, which was quite an exercise in everything you would guess about politics. After that, I had a brief stint in public accountancy. And about that time, the dot com bubble was bursting. And I got a call. The federal government wanted me to work with them a little bit. And that's why we actually worked for FEMA for a little while. And I managed the financial programs for the disaster response to at the time, which was the Los Alamos. There was a big, big fire up in Los Alamos, New Mexico, up near the national labs up there. And then, of course, all the forest areas were up there. And so I did that. And as that settled down, I was able to leave that. But while I was in the middle of that, I got a call from a school in Albuquerque to be the CFO of an independent school. And that led to my stint in independent education. Interesting. Yeah, and of course I did that until I uh, came over here. I want to definitely transition to that. And Before we get too far away from your military career, I have to ask, just because of some discussions I had had offline, I asked one of our previous guests this about the sort of the secret to transitioning successfully because, you know, it's not something that all of us go through, but you know, for those that start their career in the military and spend a substantial amount of time there, transitioning to the commercial world can be a little different. 
And I see one of the secrets to your success in doing it. But I mean, what are your thoughts on why that worked and how it worked for you and why it was successful? Oh, well, thanks. Yeah, well, you know, it is really interesting. And I would say uh, the same skills would probably be useful in transitioning, you know, in a wide variety of fronts, you know, even on the private sector, moving from one industry to another. One of the first things that points out, Mark, I think, is that, you know, working with people and organizations are going to behave substantially the same, whether it's, or at least the underlying humanity of it is going to be the same, whether it's a military unit or a, you know, a church or a school or a corporation or whatnot. They're all involved with people. And there's a real strong universality across that spectrum of how people, you know, will respond and will operate and things that they want to do. And that was certainly very, very helpful. But particularly what I found useful in that transition was using the skills that I had not only picked up, but that was certainly demanded while in the military. Leadership skills ranked very highly in that particularly. That is just absolutely critical to be able to work with other people and to just take on the challenges that come with that. Second, I would say these are skills that are developed by anybody all along the point to one degree or another, and that is flexibility and resourcefulness. You know, it has never been my, in many cases, depending on where I might have been or what the challenge was, you didn't have the flexibility to say, well, that's not what we do. You need to call another person or another part of the organization or whatnot. You just had to deal with it on the spot with whatever resources you could find. And so you find yourself being pretty flexible and pretty resourceful in those types of situations. And the can-do attitude is appropriate. It was absolutely essential in the military, and I think it's really essential anywhere in life. Creativity was a big thing. But when it comes to particularly to the transition, I think one of the biggest things I found was to actually be involved in the local community, both professionally and personally. I mentioned the Board of Advisors of the Cancer Research and Treatment Center there and my involvement with the State Society of CPAs. In fact, so I was very involved in the Albuquerque chapter, but after I left the Board of Accountancy later on, I also became the chair of the State Society of CPAs and I got to participate with the AICPA Council and all those kinds of things. So accepting leadership positions and being involved with the local community was really important and it's absolutely essential. Is that something you started doing consciously because you knew you were going to be transitioning in a few years or have you just. No. No. Yeah, okay. No. Yeah, I've done that everywhere I've been, and I think it's just my sense of being engaged with the community I'm in, you know, and really it's no different than being in a town or a city or a, you know, an airbase really is just, for example, a city, of a different kind of city, pretty self-contained and whatnot, but being involved in contributing to others has always been very important to me. I think it's probably rooted in more of a strong sense of what I consider to be duty and responsibility. Okay. Well, I just had to ask because well, thank you. I'm a big believer in that as well. But I mean, you have such a proven success story for how that involvement directly benefited your career. You know, it's, it's just very interesting. It is. Isn't it? And one thing typically leads to another, isn't it? And, and, and it all comes together when you start looking at it. The more runway you get behind you, the more you start looking at things and can see where the touch points were. Hmm. Well, you started to tell us about being recruited into the private education industry. Yeah. Yeah, let's continue there, I guess. What was that first job? Well, it was the CFO of a school called Sandia Preparatory School in Albuquerque, New Mexico. It was it consisted of a middle school and a high school. It was There were several independent schools in Albuquerque. One of them was particularly large and particularly affluent. This was The school I was at was probably the one that would have ranked two in the Albuquerque community in terms of independent education. And it was really, really fun. And it had some challenges, too. But, you know, there were some pretty neat things to look at there. One, you know, very rewarding on some way, the challenges on the other. The biggest reward 
boards were looking at it was, you know, the people, because you're really in a good position there to help people. And not only the children, so to speak, but, you know, the faculty and the parents and, and, and the people who are running the school. It's, so you really get to engage with people and you're fitting within a community and you're just trying to make the right thing happen. And the other thing I always really love, and because I love being a dad, is just being around all those kids. It's almost like you could get a, you know, energy from them, you know. It's, you could charge up just by the proximity you had to all the kids. And that's, that's very energizing. But as a professional, I think the most rewarding aspect of it was the diverse responsibilities. And that's the same type of thing I had in the Air Force, so it really appealed to me. My responsibilities include not only the financing and all the typical finance-related items, but also plant maintenance, you know, for all the physical plant, information technology. And depending on where you are, you know, human resources and those things that typically come in a, in a typical independent school. You know, the word used to be people were called business managers, and then they got a little more contemporary. and the CFO became more apparent there in the independent education. So anyway, I've had some very good fortune there, and, and it was real good. Being a native Texan, even though I didn't spend much time as a child in Texas, I was anxious to get back to Texas. My family was in Austin, Texas, and so I ultimately I got an offer to go down to St. Mary's Hall in San Antonio there as the Chief Financial and Operations Officer, and that was in 1985. And my responsibilities were very similar to what they were in Albuquerque at the school there, just a little more on steroids there at St. Mary's Hall. There was just a whole lot going on, and, and including construction which is an interesting aspect of things. You know, I would really, I mean, I, it's one of those things where you say, well, no, I'm not really a lawyer, but I slept at a Holiday Inn last night. And I found that myself with on so many different things, whether it was legal issues, whether it was construction issues, because I've had a lot of project management experience on construction, anything from, you know, student centers, cafeterias, classroom buildings, even a an astronomical observatory oh. and sports fields. You know, I mean, it's, it's just amazing the things that I was able to be directly involved in. So it was good. On the downside, you know, the challenges that you face, and you face them everywhere in life because the human equation is there. But in school environments, it's a pretty unique environment in a wide variety of ways. But one of the ways is you have children there. And so you have a lot of very involved parents in the same process. And you have a lot of faculty there who are operating definitely different than what we might have typically experienced in a public school environment. They were very, very high maintenance. And so being able to finesse that role of both the politics in between the politics and the high-maintenance faculty, it presented a wide variety of challenges, most of which were very enjoyable because you got to help people fix problems. Interesting. Yeah, I was curious about the parental effect because <laughs> even though you're in administration, you're not really shielded, I wouldn't think. <laughs> well, you know, it's different. And I talked to a lot of them and various different things. And I love to do different things. I would, for example, I went down to the elementary portion, what we call the lower school there at St. Mary's Hall, and I would read stories to the children. You know, it was, it was fun. Oh, wow. So, you, you know, you get exposed to things like that. And, and it's just really a, that part of this. It's just a joy. But dealing on the other side of the equation, particularly with a very prominent donors or people on a board of directors, a, you know, board of trustees type of thing, you deal with a wide variety of things that, that sometimes you might find yourself not necessarily on the same wavelength as somebody else. A CFO, that's an interesting point. I want to hit on that. A CFO, I guess, how much did you have to be involved with the fundraising and that aspect of it when you talk about on the donor side on and grants and right well luckily i didn't have a whole lot to do with the fundraising in terms of i mean i certainly participated in it and i helped construct some things but most schools have their own little development office 
And that's really the fundraising arm of the school. So it's nice then as a CFO, you, you're not necessarily involved with all the schmooze, the direct schmoozing, you know, that goes into all the different fundraising or the activities that supported it. But we certainly, wearing my other hat as the chief, of, you know, as the head guy in charge of facilities, I certainly got involved in a lot of those things from a standpoint of making sure that all the special events were properly managed from a facility standpoint, et cetera. I hadn't realized until I started getting into these podcasts how many <laughs> financial and accounting professionals end up having facilities. Yeah, it is a responsibility as well. <laughs> yeah, it's not something you think of right off the bat. And it just points to the fact that how important it is, how important people are into anything and everything you're trying to do, and having competent people in those positions. And when I was at St. Mary's Hall and we had the chief of maintenance who had been there for a long time leave, really become, oh, wow, what are we going to do? Oddly enough, we were able to pick up a fellow who used to be the San Antonio, he was the facilities guy at the airport. And his name is Dom Smith, for anybody listening that might know him. And I tell you what, Dom was the most competent guy you've ever seen walk on two legs. And that was another professional joy for me is to be able to see how he worked and to be able to support him and clear obstacles that might be in his path. Do you feel like your leadership and management ability all stems from the time in the Air Force, or have you done other things over the years to refine that? Yeah, it's a continuous process. I think that I really got the accelerated and the advanced course, so to speak, in in a real compressed way in the Air Force, where you really have to take on a lot of responsibility at typically what might be younger ages, you know, than you might find in the private sector. And so that was a pretty good forcing function. But it certainly, yes, it started there. And, you know, one of the things that the Air Force does really well is provides a lot of emphasis on leadership. It's something that's very valued. They train for it. They expect it. It's very much one of the products of being able to do that because throughout the Air Force, people do not stay in the same job very long. Typically, given installation, you know, the youngest officer on the base may be about 21, 22 years old, and the oldest guy, you know, may not even be 50 years old. And so in order to go from that young guy to the old guy in that relatively short span, you really have to have a wide, very broad and a lot of breadth and depth in terms of your leadership experiences and opportunities. And so it certainly began there, but it did not stop in the Air Force. It is essential in no matter where a person is or what they're doing. How did you have to adjust your leadership style or management style and the technique from the time you were in the Air Force to being at these two private educational institutions? I'm suspecting there's some differences there. But. Yeah, I had to become a whole lot less intense. I think that was the thing. I remember people in the Air Force, I had one senior officer one time, my wife Mary happened to be near one time, and the guy that was in charge of the whole outfit looked over at Mary and says, that guy's pretty intense. And I didn't, I never saw myself that way, but maybe I was, I don't know. But that's, so that was the big thing. You have to lay back a little bit and take things a little easier. And you had a choice sometimes to do a lot more things because it was the right thing to do. And that's a really a good thing to do. The potential impact of what I was doing was certainly a lot different. Nobody was getting hurt in the process. And so it was just very, very good. Was that the realization point when you decided that you needed to soften a little bit when your wife made that comment? or was yeah. that? <laughs> Well, it was, it, was, it was that senior officer that made the comment. He was looking at her. He said, oh. what's with that guy? He's just so intense. But, you know, it, I guess I just didn't see myself that way. And I think he may have been exaggerating a little bit, too. But, yeah, but that was, I had to soften things a little bit and just become a little bit different. You know, it was nice not to have to wear a uniform. It was nice to be able to be on a first-name basis with people and a whole lot less formality. So that, that was real good. I enjoyed that aspect of it. Okay. One of the other comments I've heard is that, you know, people outside of the military, you know, people actually 
they can choose whether or not they're going to follow the rules. I mean, there's consequences, <laughs> but yeah, that was surprising. <laughs> yeah, yeah. A lot less things are discretionary in a military environment. And yet, at the same time, there is room for discretion. Uh, that's where judgment comes in. Uh, judgment is absolutely critical. Sometimes the consequences of a failure in judgment is uh, can be pretty substantial. And so you have to be careful. But yeah, it is interesting. And I, I got to admit, I'm a very poor rule follower. And that goes back to the creativity. And I think it boils down to what a lot of people do. A lot of people don't want to follow the rules, but they also don't want to be accountable. And the two don't go together. Accountability is very, very important. So how long were you at St. Mary's Hall? And and I guess what are you doing now exactly? Uh, I was at St. Mary's Hall for eight years from 2005 to 2013. In October of 2013, I came up to Fredericksburg, which is just a fun place to be, as you could imagine. And I I would tell you, Mark, I am three minutes away from my office. And so I live three minutes away from my office. And so when I come to work in the morning, it's a three-minute drive. When I go home at night, it's about a three or four-minute drive. It's just a blast living in a small town. But Fredericksburg, we're a very, very active tourism town, as you know. And so we're kind of playing with the big boys in Texas. We're right there all the time with our counterparts in San Antonio, Austin, Houston, and Dallas. And we also participate at the state level quite regularly with Texas Tourism Group and constantly traveling. We have somebody, for example, typically during the year, not only what we're doing here in town and around Texas, but we'll be in Berlin or London or Mexico City, you know, to work tourism because all those markets are very important to Texas, Texas tourism particularly. And you're with the Visitors Bureau? I'm with the Convention and Visitors Bureau in Fredericksburg, Texas. We are a separately organized organization. We're a standalone 501c6 organization. And so we're not a C3. We're a C6, kind of like the Chamber of Commerce is. In a lot of places, Chambers of Commerce and Convention and Visitors Bureaus are under the same organization. We're not. We're separate. And a lot of them across the country are separate also. A lot of what used to be the standard organization name of Convention and Visitor Bureau, you'll see those changes. Even San Antonio recently changed to Visit San Antonio. Austin has the same thing, Visit Austin. Some people have, you know, something that relates to that. There are a couple, I think, New York City and out in California. I'm not sure. It wasn't L.A., I don't think, but it was one of the cities around L.A. where their name was just the name the city incorporated, as it were. So it was a really interesting environment. Who would have ever thought, given my background, that I'd be up here, you know, managing a destination in terms of visitation and those kinds of things? It's a really neat experience. It's a great place to do it. And I, honestly, I work with some of the best people that I've worked with in my whole life. The people are very nice. The people we work with are very creative. They're very can-do. They're very loyal. And these are all traits that you want people to have in any organization. I'm curious, what kind of convention does Fredericksburg attract? Because, I mean, for those that don't know, it's a hill country destination, or that's what I think of it as. Yeah, well, it is, yeah. And so, Mark, it'll change. <laughs> you have to rewrite your definition of what constitutes a convention, because as you and I would recognize it, we don't have conventions here. We don't have the facilities for a convention here. As you and I would talk about it, you know, down at the San Antonio Convention Center or something like that, where you have a national meetings. The best we can do here, it has the name Convention and Visitors Bureau because that typically was the standard name. You know, it's like the CFO of a of a startup is different than the CFO of GE, for example, and yet both they have the same duty title. And so it would be the same here, you know, but we do, we have a lot of smaller meetings here, corporate meetings and those kinds of things. The military reunions, weddings, are, of course, are big. So they're not really conventions. And one of the problems that we have, one of the constraints we have up here is the lack of facilities that are sized to hold larger groups. Now, we're never going to be, nor should we be in the business of taking conventions 
convention business away from large metropolitan areas like San Antonio or Austin, but we can have bigger meetings than we do. And so we're now developing a, we had an RFP, we've got some bids in it, and the city now has selected a developer to develop a conference center here in Fredericksburg. So we'll be able to host larger meetings than we ever have been able to host before. But in reality, the name Convention and Visitors Bureau is a pretty much a misnomer when you look at the word convention. Okay. I was curious because, yes, I think of Hill Country shopping and oh yeah, and good food on Main Street and <laughs> yeah. those kinds of things. Yeah, yeah the whole nine yards. Uh, National Park. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, and it's amazing. We, In fact, I office, our building is right across the street from the National Museum of the Pacific War. Oh, okay. And if people have not seen that or have not seen it recently, it is a worthy trip up here. It will open eyes. That is a, a national quality. It, I mean, it really is. It's right up there with the Smithsonian and major museums. It is quite an incredible thing. The guy that runs it is a retired Marine four-star. He was the commandant of the Marine Corps. And General Mike Hagee is his name, an incredibly sharp person. He's built an incredible staff over there, and he manages the Nimitz Foundation. You know, Fredericksburg was the home of Admiral Nimitz of World War II fame, born and raised here. I did not know that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's amazing. So who thinks of the Navy when you think about Central Texas or the Hill Country? But they certainly have a big naval tradition here. More than just peaches, huh? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Boy, though, I'll tell you what, those peaches, that, you know, that really is really something. In fact, we were talking this morning, I was carrying some peaches. I was bootlegging peaches to Austin and to Dallas recently and uh, to family, and I had peaches in the car. And, boy, you talk about, that's what people ought to hang from their rearview mirror is a peach because it makes a car <laughs> smell good. It's, it's amazing. But, yeah, peaches are something. And, of course, now the hot, the really hot thing, people, this is going to astound you. The Fredericksburg area, Fredericksburg and our wine business, wineries here, is second in our nation only to Napa Valley. Oh. I Who would have thought? I not that either. Yeah. yeah. I, I know there's wine tastings all up and down Main Street, but... Uh. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, people are always very sensitive to that, and they always want to say, well, we don't want to become like Austin's 6th Street, and I don't yeah. I don't think we're in any danger of doing that, but it's interesting, the things, and, and the diversity of things that are going on up in Fredericksburg and the surrounding area in Gillespie County is remarkable. There are some very high-precision light manufacturing places up here. It's just a wide, wide variety of things. And, of course, the wineries are, are big. Well, I think we touched on a lot of the variety in your career. I want to make sure, though, did we miss any major events or any turning points that you think we should? You know, it's hard to say. Yeah, I mean, I think there are a wide variety of turning points almost every day. Some of them you don't even recognize. There were certainly major events in the career that where you kind of start, everybody kind of starts off, you know, as part of the pack, you know, like running a 10K race. Everybody kind of starts together, but they kind of, that thing kind of expands as the race continues. And so does progression in any industry. And so for me, probably one of the major first turning points was being assigned to the Pentagon in 1988. And I often thought, you know, if you took a satellite image of the United States, you'd see a big trench between San Antonio and Washington, D.C. And that was created by me dragging my feet all along the way. And <laughs> But it, while it was not enjoyable in terms of just the degree of difficulty involved, it was very instructive, and I learned a lot through the process. So it was it certainly set the stage for the latter part of my Air Force career. And then probably the other big turning point for me career-wise was making that decision to leave the Air Force in 1997, which... So I just kind of took myself out of the competition for further promotion and, you know, more career advancement. But it was rooted in my what I consider to be my family values and, and more than the career values at that point. And so we made that decision, and that's what we did. Well, 
I end every podcast with the same three questions, and we've been on the phone for a little while. I want to be respectful of your time. So better get to that part. The first one is, career-wise, what has been your proudest moment? You know, for me, having had the aspirations to go in the Air Force, getting commissioned in the Air Force was an incredibly proud moment for me. It was a, it was a family legacy. Both my father and brother had been in the Air Force. On a professional standpoint, as it pertains to accounting, I didn't take the CPA exam until I was out of college for 10 years. And I took the CPA exam and I passed it on the first time. And I was very, very happy about that and, and actually did kind of well on it. That was very gratifying. I was very proud of that accomplishment because I think the people that pursue that really pay their dues. And most people, if, you know, if you, if I asked you, Mark, if you would rather jump off a high building or take the CPA exam, you'd probably ask me for directions to the building. I'm not know? even going to ask how high. I'm yeah, <laughs> that's right. You know, it's, so it's, it's quite an accomplishment for everybody that's out there doing those things. And I really encourage people to face that challenge head on and get it done. I was just think it's very impressive. And before I ever took the CPA exam, when I saw particularly young people taking the exam and passing and doing well, I was very impressed with them and, and very proud of them. And I think it's really important. And in the Air Force, serving as a squadron commander was a very, very big thing. Very, very, I think it's probably the best job in the Air Force. That was big. Well, public service announcement. For everyone listening, do not wait 10 years. If yes. It, just get it out of the way. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I at some point in time, I thought I had been adopted by Newt Becker. Yeah. <laughs> it's funny. You know, yeah, I had to go back and really brush up on some things, but it really worked out well. Well, second yeah. question. Yes. Please tell us about a mistake you've made and what you learned from it, of course. But frankly, the more colossal mistake you're willing to share, the better. We like hearing about the big, big mistakes. <laughs> the big boo-boos. Well, that's right. You know, it can happen quickly. That's for darn sure. And all of a sudden, you find yourself amidst a certain chaos. And but I would say, amongst the we face with challenge things, something might go wrong on a project, or something might get done that doesn't turn out right in the course of a career. And that could be considered to be a mistake. And, you know, if somebody, for example, gets into trouble based on a lack of judgment or something like that, that would certainly be a big mistake. And it would be a very life-changing for a lot of people. For me, I would say the biggest thing, as I look back, the biggest mistake I made was before my career started. If I were to go back and change that today, I would have worked much harder as a student at every single level. I didn't work very hard in college. I was, again, I was only interested in going to fly airplanes. That was all just a means to an end. I had a GPA that was a lot lower than it had to be. And I didn't take advantage of the vast opportunity of coursework across the spectrum, you know, whether it was something in the humanities or in the sciences. In addition to those kinds of things, all I wanted to do was, you know, go in the airports and fly planes. So my, the lesson, what I would learn from it is, to, and I would pass along to everybody, is don't waste the opportunity when you have the opportunity. It is something to be seized and be serious about the things that you're doing and do well in them. If for no other reason than to satisfy yourself that you did your best and that you could and you'd be proud of that. And I think I recovered from my uh, slacking pretty you know, well, but it, it's something that I look back and I say, I could have done better with that. Interesting. I heard something similar from a professor recently, but they're a professor, you know. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) You're not. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, you know, hey, speaking of which, Mark, I didn't mention it, and I kind of just forgot all about it, was I did teach college classes. I did it as an adjunct faculty member for both Embry-Riddle Aeronautical University. I taught their MBA program, and for the University of Phoenix, I taught management accounting and basic financial accounting, but I also taught advanced accounting in the college environment and certainly have a healthy respect for that. Interesting. 
Yeah. Well, final question, and then we'll go ahead and close it down. All right. What is the best piece of advice that you have ever received? Probably from my father. He said, you know, basically one time when we were complaining about having to go out and pick up litter and this, that, and the other, he said, if you just shovel out horse stables, be the best shoveler in town. You know, in other words, work hard, do the best at whatever you're doing at the moment, and everything else will follow. That is good advice. And from dear old dad, too. That's- <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, you know, and it's particularly poignant now because I lost my dad about three months ago. And like a lot of people, he was certainly a very, very big hero figure with me and still is. I have certainly been fortunate to have my father as long as I did. So I'm very, very grateful for that. And the advice I would tell somebody, too, is to take more risks than you probably think you should. Don't be reckless, but take more risks. Hmm. That is good advice. Yeah. Thank you. You're welcome. Well, for our audience, this has been Life in Accounting, a podcast production of whereaccountantsgo.com. If you haven't yet visited that website, please do so. You're going to find the show notes for this episode, plus, of course, every other episode that we've produced in the last year and a half. Once again, that is whereaccountantsgo.com. We also have links to all the accounting certifications, as well as review courses, which are very helpful. So once again, that's www.whereaccountantsgo.com. On that note, Bill, any final thoughts you'd like to leave us with? You know what? What I would say, Mark, to everybody listening, no matter what age they are or where they are in their career life, is to be excited, you know, get excited, and stay excited. Because really, the opportunities are limitless, and there's no you're never too old to have a second childhood, and you're never too old to be excited about something. That is perfect. Thank you yeah, so thank much. You. Well, thank you to the audience for joining us. We will see everyone next week. There's more to come.